Welcome back to In the Cube, film conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Phil. And when the credits rolled on this movie, mm. I said out loud to my wife, I feel like I really saw something. Ooh, interesting. I'll be yeah. curious to unpack that. Saw something. We'll start from there. Yeah. Uh, I'm Andrew. I'm your other co-host. And I feel like we have entered a new era of great animation. Like, just the quality of the animation. I mean, like, the physical quality of the animation over these past few years has just been staggering. Um, especially with stop-motion animation, which is, to me, a, like like performing magic <laughs> in the first place. Because I, I did stop-motion animation when I was growing up, and uh, I can tell you it is difficult, it is laborious, it is time-consuming, and it's very hard to get to look like anything at all, much less extremely expressive characters. Mm-hmm. It's It's just shockingly, shockingly well-animated. Yes, there is a lot of craft to be found in this film. There is. Isle of Dogs, directed by Wes Anderson. Uh, we're going to talk all about it in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you guys out there where you can find us on the web. You can go to our blog, which is found at www.in-the-q.com. We also have a Facebook page. Just search Facebook for In the Q, Q-U-E-U-E. Both of those places, you can find all of our episodes. You can also find supplemental things that we post on the Facebook page. And if you want to get in touch with me and Andrew, Facebook is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Like our Facebook feed, like our Facebook page rather, and then we'll populate your feed. And you can uh, even join us and be a guest on the program to talk about the film of your choice. We would love that. Yes, we live for it, among other things. <laughs> yes. Also, we have a Twitter. It is at ITQ Podcast. And then you can find us also on iTunes or on various podcast aggregates like Podcast or Overcast. And so without further ado, today's film is Isle of Dogs. The Japanese archipelago, 20 years in the future. Canine saturation has reached epidemic proportions. An outbreak of dog flu rips through the city of Megasaki. Mayor Kobayashi issues emergency orders, calling for a hasty quarantine. Trash Island becomes an exile colony. The Isle of Dogs. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Same here. Words out of my mouth. Nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it, ever. You're Rex, you're King, you're Duke, you're Boss. I'm Chief. We're a pack of scary, indestructible alpha dogs. Atari Kobayashi, you heroically hijacked a junior turboprop XJ750 and flew it to the island because of your dog. Darn it. I've got a crush on you. We get the idea. You're looking for your lost dog spots. Does anybody know it? No. no. I've lost all of my pride. Spots, if he's alive, may very well be living even at this moment as a captive prisoner. Somebody is up to something. Will you help him? Ah! 
little pilot. Why should I? Because he's a 12-year-old boy. Dogs love those. We'll find him. Wherever he is, if he's alive, we'll find your dog. Ah! It's gonna be a fight! I wish somebody spoke his language. Wow. The north, a long rickety causeway over a noxious sludge marsh leading to a radioactive landfill polluted by toxic chemical garbage. That's our destination. Great. Get ready to jump. Love that drumming. Take so mm -hmm. that trailer, I think, does set it up fairly well. It's a the story is basically about uh, in this near future, uh, there's an outbreak of dog flu in a kind of Wes Andersonized version of Japan, mm -hmm. um, and uh, dogs are quarantined on Trash Island. They're sent there to basically die or live out their re remaining days apart from the rest of the country. Sure. And um, a, uh, a young boy named Atari is searching for his dog. And so he flies a plane to Trash Island and then crash lands and has to somehow retrieve his dog. And then in the meantime, there are forces at work who are also trying to recover Atari himself. Yes. Um, so that's Isle of Dogs in a nutshell. The animation is like leaps and bounds from Fantastic Mr. Fox. Sure, yeah. It's <clears throat> it's incredibly detailed and, and Do we visually know, is it, impressive. Is hmm? it the same crew of, of folks animating it as Ooh, did Fantastic Mr. Fox? I mean, obviously it's the same question. director, but Yeah, I don't I don't know if there's a certain company that he returned to or not, but <clears throat> I, I mean I feel like the the canine family, uh, it looks similar as sure. it did in Fantastic Mr. Fox. And um, yeah, it's a good question because like Wes Anderson has really kind of taken a deep dive into animation with this film and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, he's almost kind of forging his own style in animation. And it, I'm not sure what his if he's going to do another one anytime soon. But uh, you know he's kind of made a, a visual stamp on live action, and now he's constantly kind of pushing himself to 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 different uh, achievements. So um, yeah, yeah. For so sure. the the film is is my, when I say that I felt like I saw something, what I meant was that I had a satisfying movie going experience because I saw something I'd never seen before. I saw like a vision of of a world that was original. I thought it was it was something new and different. And I I thought like well you know I don't mind that I had to pay eleven dollars to see this because it was very interesting. Um, hmm. So the uh, I don't like kind of flat out love this movie though, which I have a feeling you possibly do. <laughs> 
Well, there there are elements of it that I love, but there are elements that that trouble me as well. Um, the, the animation was astonishing. I mean, as an animation aficionado, uh, someone who mm-hmm. truly, truly loves animation in all of its forms, uh, this was a mind-boggling movie. This it, it it maybe didn't impress me quite as much as the box trolls did in terms of stop motion animation, but it's about mm-hmm. as close as. Uh, I I've seen and there were wonderful touches like when whenever there's smoke or dust you can tell that they use like like sort of like shredded cotton or something similar to to simulate it but it like you can tell that it's artificial but you can also appreciate the effect that it gives and how convincing it is uh, mm-hmm. it's really nice um, I also love the fact that it switched uh, between stop motion animation and traditional uh, drawn animation. Whenever we would see something on a television screen, yeah. uh, it would be classically animated. And then of course in the quote unquote real world, it was uh, stop motion animation. It really very impressive stuff um, mm-hmm. all around. Now the part where I, I, I don't like the film as much is the same thing that you've heard me say time and again about Wes Anderson, it feels distant. It feels emotionless. It feels that the characters, like the stakes are yes, technically there, but I never feel the emotional stakes. I feel like since his first three films, Wes Anderson has slowly drifted away from genuine emotion being expressed in his movies. And we are, (laughs) I think, you know, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I really enjoyed a lot. It was, of course, based on source material by Roald Dahl, which I think probably helped it because it it felt a little... It felt like it was more meaningful. Like, like everything was more meaningful to the characters themselves. Um, there mm. are parts of this film, and I think that it is helped greatly by the fact that it doesn't really have any subtitles or a ton of translation when the... Uh, Japanese characters are speaking. Um, I think there, there are elements of this film that had, there, it was kind of forced into visual storytelling uh, on the emotional side of things. Uh, some very convincing tears in this film uh, in terms of animation, uh, mm. but a little bit less convincing in terms of what I thought the characters actually felt. Um, so it, it was, it was bizarre because I was of two minds about it. I was very much enjoying the animation while being very bothered by how little I had emotionally invested in the movie. Yeah, and I share your criticism because it it, it does have this kind of ironic detachment for everything. Yeah. And um, it, I mean, I, not to even pretend to be like a forensic psychologist, but to me, I almost felt like this is the work of a psychopath because <laughs> so much so much attention is paid to the tiniest details, yeah, like the tiniest tear, as you say, coming out of an eye, or or like the the kind of the materiality of emotion without the emotion itself, yeah. And um, I'm not a fan of how. Uh, there's a certain kind of rigidity, the way he kind of blocks all the characters, yeah, uh, the, the, all the dogs, and then and the, even the human actors. Like, 
it's very kind of stiff. And I don't know. I would like to think that maybe he is doing a callback to some type of Japanese film that he's because he's referencing a lot of Japanese movies here. Sure. Um, he's got characters named Kobayashi and Kikuchio is one of the samurais from Seven Samurai. Yep. And um, I think that Dodeska Den was an influence on Trash Island itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a slum that's surrounded by garbage. But um, but anyway, yeah. So so the animation is 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 weirdly impersonal, but still very interesting and and captivating. Yeah. Um. But I also I'm also sympathetic to people who are expressing concern over the the cul- cultural appropriation too, um, and kind of like uh, uh, calling up this phony version of Japan, using it and then discarding it basically. Mm. Um, like for example, one of my friends re- remarked before the film was released that if you look at the poster for Isle of Dogs, like um, there's there's Japanese characters underneath every word Isle of Dogs, but they don't even correspond to the translation. Like mm-hmm. it actually says like Dogs of Isle in Japanese, but then with the words Isle of Dogs pasted over it. And other other friends of mine have said that. It portrays it further others Asian cultures. Uh, it portrays them as hysterical or like or as uh, maniacally sadistic regarding dogs. Um, and yeah. and other people have said that you know Greta Gerwig's character, the only white character in the film, is the savior of everything. And right, right um, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of kind of like, you know, yeah, you kind of have to hand it to them. And and sure. This is a complicated moment for filmmakers, and Wes Anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, but I think maybe I kind of had to use the old familiar test and think, like, would I have done this film? How would I have <laughs> approached this? And I probably wouldn't have, just because it is such a kind of a very problematic kind of story to tell and the way that it's told. I mean, the thing, like, I, I also had a, a discussion with a friend of mine recently, and and she was the one who brought up that she said that yeah, she saw the film and she thought that in a way, sure, it was good, but it, that it was racist. And I immediately kind of snapped and I said, like, well, what are you saying? You're saying he shouldn't have made the film. And I was kind of getting defensive on on Wes Anderson's behalf. Um, but the truth is, it. Uh, it, I think that it has value as as an animated film, but the fact that you know this is a film that's ostensibly about Japan or a version of Japan, yeah. even though what Wes Anderson films are really always about Wes Anderson, they're mm-hmm. always like a his kind of in, spin on reality. Um, I think in this case, it's it's tricky and i i definitely have a sympathetic ear towards anyone of the asian persuasion who feels that this film is is a misrepresentation of asian culture or specifically japanese culture because it it's uh i'm not offended personally because i don't really have a stake but i think that it is it's it's a problematic film especially to come out at a time like this yeah, I'm I'm not sure you know why it couldn't have been done, you know, placed off the coast of Seattle or something like that. Exactly. Why did it have to be an Asian country? Yeah, why did it have to be Japan and why did it have to be this other than 
the fact that you know like myself i'm sure wes anderson is fascinated by japanese culture um and uh everything that that you know the history of japan um the art of japan all of that is clearly influential and i'm sure wes anderson is a a filmmaker and a film buff um as you mentioned earlier phil he's referencing great japanese filmmakers because the you know history of japanese cinema is a long and storied history of truly great art and Mm -hmm. so you know as as with any of these these kinds of situations it's difficult to say wes anderson you've done an out and out wrong in in telling this story because it you know it's not necessarily his story to tell in the end it's really a story about a little boy and dogs uh who don't have a nationality or a <laughs> a a persuasion in in that way um but on the other hand yeah why why not make different choices mm-hmm. um it's it, it's and i think that that's the the kind of questions hollywood needs to be asking itself these days uh especially if you're running the risk of appropriating another culture uh, is there any reason that you can't do it differently? And if there isn't, go ahead, make your film. You you should prepare yourself for a potential backlash. But if there is a way for you to do it differently, then why not do it differently? If there is a way for you to approach your story or your idea mm-hmm. without treading on another cultural uh, another culture's toes then why not do that and also you could you could have the added bonus of telling a more honest story sure Uh, sure you could you could avoid stepping on the toes of another culture but then you may also kind of unlock true pathos and true emotion and true stakes sure um but i think i think you know he's anderson is so interested in his kind of like you know, uh, storybook world and, and making it artificial. I think that's kind of what he wants to do. Yeah. And it probably in Wes Anderson's mind, none of this is factoring in, I would guess, because I, I feel like, I think I, I said this when we talked about the grand Budapest hotel, but I feel like ever since, uh, life aquatic with Steve Zissou, Wes Anderson has been kind of on this march towards making his films more and more like these sort of meticulously constructed doll houses and the actors in them are merely dolls <laughs> that yeah. he is using for the purposes of, of placeholders in order to make the picture look the way he wants it to look and behave the way he wants it to behave. And I feel like this is part of the reason that stop motion animation is kind of the perfect medium for Wes Anderson because he has total control over absolutely every aspect of it. Um, I wrote an article about how the characters in grand Budapest hotel are like a cinematic version of guess who the mystery face game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah. It's almost like in this film, like he, he had to make them dogs in order to do something different, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, and that is, it's fun because it it, it it results in a a clear auteur sensibility. I mean, 
nobody else's films look or feel like Wes Anderson. There's no question about it. He he is completely unique in the landscape of cinema. But uh, but that can also be a problem because if you're treating actors and cultures and uh, all of that just as kind of props to be used within the context of your construction, it I think that 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 has a potential to go awry. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of. Yeah, the more the more you talk about it, the more you unpack it, and the more you read about the reaction to this film, like it's sure. kind of like, man, like it's kind of a <laughs> kind of a a, a uh, what's the word? Kind of a, a an etiquette misfire, or like a, a faux kind pas. of a, a faux pas. Seriously, you know, like I mean, so many people had to kind of sign off on this idea in order in order for it to be realized. Well, it had to be in production for years. Yeah, I don't know when it started, but yeah, it's a uh... animation of this kind and quality takes quite a long time. So I can only imagine that it's been at least probably three or four years in production. Or at least yeah, in, so from pre-production Grand, to completion. Grand Budapest was what, 2014, I think? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I remember speaking about Life Aquatic. I remember seeing the trailers for Life Aquatic. And being so let down after Royal Tenenbaums. I saw that in theaters in 2001. I loved it. And then I saw these trailers and I could and I could see that Wes Anderson was going down this different path. Yeah. And he was going down this path where you could tell he wanted the costumes to match. He wanted the production design to match. The yeah. colors had to be hyper real. It was all very quirky looking and visually aesthetic. ornate. It was an aesthetic, aesthetic experiment, yeah. But like, but the the humor was uh, not grounded in the same real place that it was in Tenenbaums, to put it that way. Yeah. And I actually now years later, I actually enjoy uh, Life Aquatic, and I enjoy all of his films. But uh, there is definitely a, a departure point, I think, when he stopped writing with Owen Wilson mm-hmm. and he started to kind of pursue this kind of like uh, hipster fascist visual style. <laughs> <laughs> I just coined a new term. <laughs> hipster fascist visual style. That's uh, I mean, that's pretty spot on. Uh, it, I mean, it is very it is very ordered uh and it's striking for that i mean watching a wes anderson film is consistently visually interesting i mean there isn't a a shot in the film that has not been meticulously composed Mm -hmm. right and that makes for wonderful and fascinating watching but and rewatching too. And rewatching, yeah, and and picking apart and having fun with like sort of dissecting the mise en scène and and understanding why these choices were made. But I I maintain that it, it's at the expense of character and emotion and all of these things that make films really great and really fun yeah. to watch. He seems so determined to just turn away from all that though you know yeah yeah it's like he just wants to kind of make it on his own 
brand. And I mean, it's, that's, it's, it's weird. It's very, I mean, like this well, film, yeah. <laughs> when I say that like a psychopath made it, like, I mean, yeah, it's like, it's, it's so meticulously designed not to reveal emotion. Yeah. And, um, it, it's, it's almost like there's, there's a lack <laughs> of, there's a, yeah, <laughs> there's like a lack of understanding of the, the, the payoff of emotional catharsis, right? You have to build to a payoff in the same way that you have to like build a joke or build uh, tension in a film. You have to build the emotional inner lives of the characters so that when you do have moments of, of genuine sorrow or joy or anything like that, you're, you as an audience member are feeling those emotions because you're living through the characters in the film and they are feeling those emotions. And so you are experiencing what they are experiencing or experiencing the joy of seeing great things happen or the sadness of seeing terrible things happen to those characters that are on stage on, on screen or on stage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Wes Anderson, I feel like it's almost like there's a shorthand that like when the character is frowning and crying, that means that we are sad now. And that's the, that's all the work that's done to. Yeah build into an emotional payoff. It's just like saying like, do you understand that now is the cue where you are supposed to feel this thing that you are supposed to feel now? And he's also got this stock company of actors that he keeps working with and he's, he's bringing new people in. Yeah. But you know, you're talking about shorthand, like the new people like uh, Courtney B Vance, Greta Gerwig and mm-hmm. Leah Schreiber. Um, they're great voice actors, but it's almost like they understand what he wants. Now he wants, Kind of like uh, a, a kind of like a technical reading of the lines without emotion. Like a lot of his dialogue is so odd and so unnatural, <laughs> but we're used to hearing these voices say it. We're used to hearing Edward Norton say things like that or Bill Murray say things like that. And so when when he kind of is like directing his actors to almost drain the emotion out of their voice as they say these lines. Yeah. It's like he is, uh, he's really kind of split off in his own direction here. And he seems determined to kind of resolutely follow his vision Mm -hmm. in every way. And I think, I think he's, he's, he's obviously aware that he has a huge following and I will continue to see his films yeah, in the theater for sure same because here. I think it's it's because I care about the medium. I think he's doing things with the medium that are interesting. Um, but that being said, like uh, I actually had zero curiosity to revisit Isle of Dogs, and when I say that it would it would hold up under under repeated viewings, I think that you will definitely notice new things if you saw this a second time. Sure, sure. Uh, but why would I want to, really? Why would I have the need to? Well, what you just described is sort of exactly... I, I have watched Bottle Rocket a few times. I watched Rushmore many, many times. I've watched Ro- Royal Tenenbaums almost as many times as Rushmore, probably. 
And I have watched all the rest of his films exactly one time. And never again. And I, I like I I I have no desire to return to most of his films. There there are a couple in there that I'd like to revisit and kind of pick apart some parts of it that I remember or that I think about from time to time. But I what you you just described in terms of your feeling towards Isle of Dogs, I've felt for everything that he's done since Life Aquatic. And so it's while I, I also think that he's doing interesting th- things with the medium and I will continue to see his films because I find them to be fascinating, regardless of how, how I end up feeling about them. I still, I just don't, I just don't, I don't like returning to a world where I don't care about anybody and they don't care either. It's, it's, yeah. it's just like a That's weird the thing. thing. If if the if the characters don't care, then that that could be a deal breaker for some. Yeah. And and all of his films, even even his early masterpieces, uh, kind of have that kind of aesthetic of of there is some detachment there, like in yeah. Rushmore, Road to Bombs, but uh, but there's still a lot of genuine feeling and. Yeah, I have to con- concur that after Tenenbaums, that kind of genuineness is largely absent. Although, I do really like Moonrise Kingdom, <laughs> and I also like Darjeeling Limited. I Actually, um, it's funny that you mentioned those two, because I was thinking that I need to return to Moonrise Kingdom, largely because of how much you like it, and then also uh, how much I, other people I know like it. Um, and then Darjeeling, I actually want to return to, if only because I want to wrap my brain around that one scene in that movie <laughs> that seems to have deep, genuine emotion, and then the rest of the movie oh. doesn't. And I can't remember how it leads into that or how it comes wait, off wait, wait. of that. Oh, I thought I thought you were going to say something else. I thought you were going to say that one that one Pratt fall that doesn't work that made you so mad. Oh no, that where, still where makes he, me mad. He runs into the door like. <laughs> It's a very uh, obvious uh, gag, but it's it it is the worst. It's it's the least convincing platform. Like <laughs> I've never seen anything so poorly done in anything with any budget. I don't understand how it happened. It's like he's really bad at doing all the t- traditional things that people go to movies to see, <laughs> like romance, uh, fight scenes. You know, yeah. Like he's really bad at all the basic stuff, but he's really meticulous about his own vision. Yeah, and his own vision is one of the most fascinating things out there. So, like, I, I, actually, no, I think, it, but... I think Darjeeling Limited, I think, is really, really quite good. And there's a really funny scene I, when you said that there's a scene that has like a genuine emotion. I'm trying, I'm already searching the mental Rolodex here, but there's a really funny scene where like the three <laughs> guys, the three brothers, get kicked off the train and they're huddled around a fire in the middle of India, and like they're playing Claire de Lune on a on this boombox, and it's like this really beautiful like moment where they're like how come we haven't spoken in a year it's because we don't trust each other and then the music is like da, 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 da. and then jason schwartzman goes wouldn't it be great if we just heard a train whistle somewhere in the distance and then adrian birdie goes no and then owen wilson <laughs> goes probably be annoying <laughs> And then the scene ends. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like he undercuts and all the emotion with with some really funny humor, but uh, except for this one scene. It's the what is the scene? I have to know. It's the scene where they pull the the drowned kid out of the the like oh. weir out of the 
<clears throat> the weir and the little river. Like that, it's like the only moment in that film that it's like all of a sudden the stakes are real and everybody is genuinely emotionally affected by what's happening. It's the only time in that entire film that he doesn't undercut it. And, that and you know what? Amazing. I think that's one of the last times that he did that in a film. Yeah. You know, because like you can say, you know, he did that even in Life Aquatic. Yeah. Um, yeah. With the death of Owen Wilson's character. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like after after Darjeeling, I think uh, even in Moonrise Kingdom. The serious threats are always absurd. Yeah. And unbelievable. Yeah. But I still like it, though. Hey, to each their own. Well, that's our that's our breakdown on Wes Anderson. Yeah, I yeah. really hope he keeps making films because oh, I course. am very interested in them. Yeah, likewise. Um, and I think that he has the potential to make another great film. I'm sure of it. If he makes another live action film, I think it could be great if he if he does it well. Agreed. Maybe if he just. Uh, listens to his heart a little bit more or or does the opposite and goes in the opposite direction but just goes full on ham <laughs> yes. and then comes up with something that nobody could even conceive of. Well, I feel like but, one of his heroes is Jean-Luc Godard who, who's just like grown more and more formalist and bizarre over time. I feel like he's he's he might end up going in that direction and it's going to be weird. Well... Who knows? He's still a young man. He's only he's going to be fifty next year. So, yeah, yeah. hey, look, if you look at a lot of my favorite directors, they didn't make their best films until they were at least fifty. Yeah. So uh, we'll keep an eye out on you, Wes Anderson. <laughs> In the meantime, Isle of Dogs is uh, a word that I've overused already. Problematic, yeah. but it's interesting. It's worth unpacking. It's worth having a conversation. And if you buy a ticket to see the film, you could say that you're not endorsing racism, but you're endorsing interesting, quirky films. And then you can talk <laughs> about them later. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So stay tuned for our next episode. It's going to be another listener's choice. Yes. We're going to have Eric back on the program to talk about Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry which is a documentary about the famous Chinese dissident artist. Well, I don't know if he's a dissident, but I think he is the an artist. Chinese government probably views him that way. Indeed. Well, uh, stay tuned for that. We will see you then. <laughs>